0: I'm back with Matt McGregor to discuss the week's acquisition headlines. So let's get right into it. SECNAV memo, new destroyer, fighter, or sub. You can only pick one and cut nuclear cruise from USNI news. So that was pretty much pretty straightforward, right? Pick a new destroyer, the the new SSNX, or a new fighter to prioritize because of the affordability issues. And then they're also going to nuclear cruise missile. And then there's also this quote, the chief of naval operations is directed to develop a 10 year infrastructure reset strategy, similar to the Marine Corps to achieve a 1% facility footprint reduction, measuring square feet per year over 10 years. So affordability really rising to the top here in the Navy.
1: Yeah, this kind of goes to like the the services for a long time, they were always trying to do BRAC, because if you can minimize some of your infrastructure, there's a lot of uh, additional funds that free up. So uh, this is interesting that I've never seen it quantified quite that much, like a 1% facility footprint, but it just shows you how much how much you can get out of that for modernization. So yeah, interesting. It is interesting. The one thing I picked up in that article is they, there are program offices for all three of those platforms. So it's interesting to me that those programs are all marching off, doing their thing, the NGAD one, they Guided missile destroyer and the the new attack boat I'll oh, seem also point.
0: pretty staggered, right? Like it seems like the fighter might be the most near term destroyer at the middle of the twenties, and then the sub at in like the beginning of the thirties. It does say all three
1: programs are about the same point of development, but maybe you're right about the fielding.
0: Maybe the fielding, oh, not the fielding, but I mean like the major part of the develop. Like you could probably get into a major development of the fighter within the next five years. Yeah, and yeah. then the, do the destroyer the back end of the twenties and then the sub in like the early 30s. That's it it, it yeah. feels like that's what their kind of shipbuilding plan had specified at least for the two ships there
1: but I guess they even with the staggered I guess they're still going to need to put good chunks of R&D money up there. But it is just curious to me that they have all those offices going off and off marching you have a whole infrastructure set up. So if they only have enough money for one at what point are they going to back off some of those program offices? Are they going to stand them down? Yeah, it's kind of curious. And then they also got kind of criticized too for direct, not directing full funding towards a project overmatch for JADC2. So that's another one there where, yeah, if they need to put more R&D towards that, especially as J6 starts mapping out all those things that they're doing now for the joint staff effort, maybe that will take more money away. So yeah, the interest interesting to see what they do here.
0: There's going to be a bunch more on the Navy, but first we'll kind of go back over to the Air Force. B-52 re-engining costs up 9% due to fresh data, industrial realities from Air Force Magazine. Quote, the total program cost of the re-engining the B-52H fleet of 76 airplanes will be about 11 billion. The CERP could, and that's the re-engining program, could produce a disproportionate reduction in the need for tanker support of B-52, as much as a 50% drop depending on the scenario. So <laughs> I guess it wasn't clear to me how much more efficient these re engineing or the, the new engines would be, but costs are up a little bit. Seems like they're just going to keep going ahead with it, of course.
1: Yeah, this effort, I think, has been, gotten a little bit confused because people think about just the engines, which I believe they were trying to take advantage of some of the commercial the commercial engines that were out there and not have to be relying on a, on a very particular type set. So they were looking at being able to tap into some of the, some of the airliner industrial base and their repair facilities and things like that, if they needed to. So I, I can see some efficiencies there for sure, just in general for o but this program also has a lot of other pieces to it. It's like replacing a lot of the front end of the aircraft, like the, the cockpit and a lot of like network upgrades and, and things like that so communication gear so it's a, there's a lot there's a lot in there so i am not at all surprised that some of those costs i thought
0: those were like in the article i thought they were separate like the reengineering program the mta was like a, was separate from a lot of the kinds of up- upgrades to the avionics and the other things going on or are they actually bundled into the same program
1: they're bundled into the same thing yeah c CERP. Has, I think the radar piece is different, but yeah, I think the, the RMP program is a separate program, but CERP actually has a lot of other stuff besides just the engine. And that was some of the prototyping, what that was for is actually look at different options for how to modernize some of the electronic stuff. So yeah, there are some separate pieces, but the CERP is a little bit bigger. But yeah, I hope they get those efficiencies though, because that, that would be really substantial. And, and to me, it would just make the case for dragging you out to B52 even further as long as that as long as the, the, the lifespan, as long as the, the structural piece will handle it. But
0: yeah, they will get up to 90 years or 80 <laughs> yeah. years or so. So the next one here, sticking with uh, digital engineering, New team Red Hawk trainer faces delays over parts shortages testing uh, from military.com. Advanced timetables show that the Red Hawk is being delayed roughly 15 months from the original milestone C decision date. The Air Force on Friday cited parts shortages due to COVID-19's effect on the global supply chain, initial design delays, and additional required testing for the setbacks. The decision is now expected in late 2023. And then they go on to talk about how the additional testing has had to do with the aircraft wing rock, meaning the aircraft has the potential to enter into an uncontrollable role while flying at certain angles of attack. The Air Force has said these issues uh, were discovered during the testing phase. So I thought this was interesting. It feels more like the re engineering program cost. Of course, that was a big digital design, I guess, Pathfinder as well. But that would seem to be mostly just regular industrial issues, COVID-19. This one here, you see some of it, but is there a chink in the digital <laughs> design armor? We're getting these delays and potentially it would seem that, of course, when you went through testing, you found certain issues at certain angles of attack. but. Were, could that have been like just a mathematical thing, right? That was well, a ramble
1: there, but I wonder. I think they did say, I think there was a thing in here because I was wondering that too. Oh, yeah, they said the initial design delays are due to problem. Digital model based engineering would not alleviate those concerns. So they, were talking, they were talking about the supplier concern. But in fact, that it it's resolved via a flight software update, I, I feel like maybe it's they, not a big deal. Yeah, it was maybe there was there's more automation now on a lot of these jets. So. Maybe it was just one of those things where some calibration thing or some data element was not, was not calculating correctly or something. So I don't know the exact issue, but it's pretty interesting about having production relevant jets before EMD. Like the fact that they flew so many different test flights before they even really finished development is, is definitely something to watch. It's almost like the opposite of concurrency in a way, where it's not like, like you're in production, but you're actually, you're flying it before you're finishing your development. So I think that's maybe something interesting is when, if you did a comparison at the end of all of this and said, if you had done, if you had found this problem, let's say at, at ot e after you had maybe had a few hundred jets produced for LRIP, how much more of an impact would that have had to, to other things? Like, would you have, inadvertently caused other issues that you wouldn't be able to correct so easily. So I don't know. It'll be interesting to see compare what was the benefit of doing the digital engineering? What did it get you in comparison to like a traditional timeline? They
0: say at least in production, the production costs are much lower. You like start out very far down the the kind of learning curve in terms of costs. Yeah. And that could be exciting as well, but it seems like for the T it was built with prototyping. I guess my fear is, that if you just do an e digital series or whatever, and you just like e design it and go through the whole rigmarole and then spend years doing that and then expect that you can just go straight to a milestone C kind of thing. That would be my fears. It seems that digital engineering and prototype testing have to have this kind of quick iterative feedback themselves. Yeah, there doesn't seem to be
1: a substitute for actually going and flying it. You see this with all kinds of things, even like F1 cars that are millions and millions of dollars and wind tunnels and all these things. And then they still they get out there and the driver's going around the track and they're like, this thing sucks. you just can't you can't anticipate everything until you actually put a actually go out there and fly it in the real world.
0: The next one we got FY2 shipbuilding budget could do more to pave the way for US Navy fleet transformation experts say. Forward load the things that we can build today so that maybe on the back end we're gonna buy fewer of those and then buy more of the new classes of ships. The FY22 Request signals its interest in buying more near-term operations and maintenance instead of investing in the future. So that's, that's one point of view. Another point of view here, is CNO Gilday, flatter declining Navy budgets will definitely shrink the, na- the fleet, USNI news. While the Navy has for years been building towards the goal of 355 ships, Gilday says the service has only enough money for 300 vessels in its current budget. Over the last 20 years, manpower operations and maintenance costs, 60% of our budget has grown at 2.4% above the rate of inflation. Meanwhile, the buying power of the Navy is less than it was back in 2010. Back then, we had 288 ships. Today, we have 296. So here's the budget has grown slightly, but not to the Navy's uh, desire to get to the 355 ships. And so now they're already seeming to drop the emphasis on that. And we'll see if they can, how far above 300 chips they're actually going to get. And this has caused a bunch of concern in, in some of the Hask and the SASC hearings on the Navy budget this year.
1: Yeah, there's definitely been like a fixation on that 355 number. I thought they did a pretty good job or there was that one graph that, that you included in there. Uh, did a pretty good job of showing, depending on how many you buy of, of each thing, like you can go in from the low to the high. And so I guess it really depends if we're buying a lot more aircraft carriers on the high end. That's going to eat up a lot more budget, maybe capacity than if you're doing more small surface combatant ships or support vessel stuff. So yeah, I guess it depends on the, the mix. It's, it doesn't seem that hard to me to get to 355 if they start moving towards like the one article was getting at, getting after the more distributed maritime operations fleet that would have more smaller, more unmanned ships. Less expensive, I'm sure you could build them a lot faster and things like that. So, yeah, if they start moving to these light an- amphibious ships and, and things like that, then maybe they can get to that 355 number. But I do have a lot of sympathy for the Navy leadership that has to balance modernization with readiness. I mean, General Mattis, Secretary Mattis, when he became SECDEF, this was his big focus because he just saw that so much of the budget was being eaten up by OM. So I really hope that the Navy, even though they had to invest in some near-term ONM, I'm hoping that they can quickly move on some of these other ships and maybe start to divest of some of those vessels that are driving that ONM bill, maybe like the uh, littoral combat uh, ships.
0: Yeah, yeah. So they did show a nice chart here. It's the low to high range is like 321 to 372 in tor- in terms of the battle force. And then they had um, a number of between 77 and 140 for uncrewed vessels surface and, and undersea. And not really sure. It looks like this was probably talking about Battle Force 2040. But yeah, I hear you as well. Um, it, one of the things that's not really clear here is when you do, let's just say you do go drop some of these, like you drop two aircraft carriers. Well then, of course, the shipyards are going to say, hey, these other ones are going to be much more expensive. And it's interesting to, to to hear what happens there. The 2.4% above uh, the rate of inflation was interesting though. And I think that gets to what you're saying. O&M is just going to eat your lunch, right? No matter what, if it's just growing, if to do the exact same thing, every year is going to cost you 2% more. Over 30 years, you've lost what? Like half of your buying power. You can only buy half. half? I'm not really sure. It's the rule of 70 and we can do that out, but you're losing quite a bit. and. If you just have to break out of that and how are they going to do it? They're also talking about reducing infrastructure, but then there's also the PSYOP plan. They have to do a lot of work in, at the, the Navy maintenance yards or the shipyards in order to get those costs down as well. And that takes investment. It's like investment away from modernization, but it's also investment in O&M. And yeah, there's a lot of hard choices to be made, right?
1: Yeah. This is why I think that the, the future budgets are going to be a lot more of the pivot to the Pacific they're, they're going to they're have to be a lot bigger because the one thing the Navy won't be able to do is they won't be able to sustain a really heavy force presence with doing freedom of navigation and maybe doing some force presence kind of missions with some of our allies and going all over the world back and forth with carriers and the whole fleets and stuff. They're, if In order to maintain that sort of battle rhythm, they're probably going to continue to eat up some OM dollars. So in some cases, there may have to be some really hard trade-offs with some of the other services. And I think you start you saw that start with the army here in this last budget, but it may have to get even more severe than that in order for the navy to modernize and continue all the current stuff they're doing. Yeah, that'll be interesting to watch.
0: Yeah, one of the big Congress that was yelling at them a couple of weeks ago because like they also have this uh shipbuilding and decommissioning totals that they presented, and they're trying to decommission one, two, three, four, five, six, seven cruisers. And they were talking about, okay, you're going to retire these cruisers. I think they have over a hundred vertical launch systems, right? On each of those. And you're going to replace them with a couple of burks or something like that. And they also cut a Burke out of this year's budget as well, which was a big sticking point. And we were talking a little bit about this. Why did they cut that out? Because they thought Congress might just add it back in what's going on behind there. But yeah, it seems like they're retiring four LCSs. And then a number of cruisers, and that's going to diminish their cap- capacity soon. And it's that perennial question, do I sacrifice capability today for the hopes of something tomorrow? And then everyone in the DOD and political realm, is, we've been burned by that one before. So then you never get started on it again. And are things different? Maybe not, but it's interesting to, to see what they're going to have to do. And that's even without
1: the politics of some of the shipyards. I think it's going to be really interesting to see if, as they move to smaller ships that can maybe be built in other harbors, it's not we're not just doing all the big stuff. Will there be competition that will start to make some political waves in the shipyards that are used to getting x amount of big ships and having secured production for long periods? Will that drive? Will that drive some more politics into those decisions? So how how much even harder will it be? But yeah, this
0: will be interesting. Next one we got, let's move on to the GSA to set to alter cloud buying landscape with new policy, Federal News Network. So this new cloud buying policy came from the Section 809 panel, right? It was the consumption-based solutions made it into the NDAA. And GSA is now rolling it out. We hope that the policy lays out a clear way to execute the pay-by-the-drink execution strategy using the schedules. So the pay by the drink is when you pay by the mile or pay by the distance on Uber, or you pay by the hour on computing for cloud. That's what they want to move to rather than the current kind of contracting scenarios. And so here's another part of the quote of the 6.8 billion agencies spent on cloud services in fiscal year 2020, according to Bloomberg government, about 400 million of that came through the schedule. So that's about the amount that might move to this GSA schedule. But hopefully it opens up the aperture so that contracting officers just have a much easier time using commercial practices to buy commercial cloud services, and then hopefully expand that to everything as a service. <laughs> Maybe not everything. The Space Force sounds like they're trying to go that way. Approach more and more on different things, not just cloud, but you can imagine it being used for AI, ML, where it's like for natural language processing you do it by the hour or something like that as well. And you can imagine this being expanded out. So I'm pretty bullish on it. How about you?
1: Yeah. The one thing I didn't see is that they they were really focusing on the GSA schedules. And I think GSA is often looked at as the agency that should consolidate everything. But the services do have a lot of their own cloud contracts that are, are used for multiple programs, multiple organizations within the service. I think there are other schedules out there that may not be quite as all encompassing as GSA, or it might not be a DoD wide one. Actually, that would be an interesting one: is if Jedi had actually been awarded on time, how much how much would have gone to Jedi? But you do have Cloud One on the Air Force side, and I know the Navy and Army have have some of their own cloud contracts. So,
0: well, that I was think- my in the FY21 they gave the cloud-based or consumption-based solutions authority as a pilot authority to DHS and DoD. I, would, I was just not really expecting GSA would set up a schedule and be like the torchbearer for this. And just seeing that happen makes me optimistic for the services and all, and everyone else who's doing, buying their own cloud, but to also do the same, pivot to that model.
1: Yeah, I. Do, but I do think, I guess what I was getting at a little bit was I think the services are, they're doing it at their own level. And then I think DoD still is trying to, trying to get something like JEDI. So I think GSA, the only way that GSA will be more compelling is one, if they're directed. Because like today, if you're doing a service contract for labor, there's there are directives that you will use OASIS, which is a GSA kind of government vehicle. So there might be a case where people, agencies are directed to use GSA, but if they're not directed, I think GSA is going to have to show that they're more cost effective. And it didn't seem like this was focusing as much on cost. Is more like flexibility, but I think they're going to have to show that they're also more cost effective because GSA does have a fee. You know, I don't know if everyone realizes that, but when a federal agency uses GSA, there's a few percent that they have to pay to GSA for that. So they're going to have to show that they can, they can make it more attractive. The the one thing that I think is really helpful here is not every office can, there's different rules, right? And so the fact that GSA is getting out there and saying, making this as flexible as possible where you can incrementally fund cloud services instead of putting all the money on there. You just have to give estimated total quantity. I think some of the contracts cloud contracts today are a little bit more strict than some of the rules. So maybe that's their selling point is flexibility because it is really tricky. Like this is something DOD I can't speak to the other agencies, but DOD is really going to have to evolve on and I think that's where the pilots will hopefully show is How do you manage cloud services? How does the program office keep track of how that consumption is is going? Like how well they estimate? Are there ways they can reduce their cloud costs by like redundant data and different things? So I think there's a lot to learn on how to do this because some of the anecdotes I've heard is that if you don't really, if you don't do it right, you can easily have all of your funding quickly absorbed and then you're like halfway through the year And you don't have any more funding for cloud services, or if you don't structure the contract, you could go into an anti-deficiency situation. Yeah, I think there's a lot to learn here. And hopefully GSA will help iron out some of that stuff that the services haven't been able to.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting point. Mark Andreessen, or Andreessen Horowitz, they came out with that article recently showing like Dropbox was saving a ton of money going back from cloud (laughs) and from cloud back to on-prem. And is on-prem... In some ways, more efficient because if you did go to a consumption-based solutions with cloud and you burned up all of your like money in half the in half the year, that means yeah, you've probably factored your data pretty terribly, or um, it's just not a good deal. <laughs> but yeah. for some reason, it seems there was a bunch of backlash to that article from Injuries and Horowitz as well. So I, I can't really adjudicate who's right or who's wrong there. But still, it seems directionally correct yeah. for consumption-based solutions and just hoping it it, it gets used more often because that would be the natural way for companies to invest in their own products and then sell those products back like digital services in a very commercial manner. So yeah, here here we go with China sends record 28 fighter jets toward Taiwan, military.com. The planes include various types of fighters, including 14 J-16s and six J-11 planes, as well as bombers, the ministry said. So- here we go with some more provocation. I don't, One of the things that, again, in, in these uh, budget hearings to keep hearing the, the members talking about was Davidson's claim that he expects China to invade Taiwan within six years. And that just got a whole bunch of play and no one would respond to it. They'd be like, it's a possibility, but we're supposed to be fighting tomorrow. So we don't think about those types of things almost. But yeah, so... Not much to see here, just the, some more
1: of the same, it seems like. The one thing it does show is that it goes back to the Bill Greenwald, Dan Pat's paper about how much time do we have? I think when you start to see this level of, ass- of certain assertiveness increase and, and the confidence in PLA's confidence, yeah, I think it's a sign that maybe DOD doesn't have as much time to modernize before something something happens and we need to respond and hopefully we're ready yeah i think china doesn't do things willy-nilly they typically are very very deliberate and yeah i think if you start to see more of this and they're really pushing the boundaries and in the area and doing more provocative things in the trade lanes and things like that then maybe it's just maybe it should just be motivation <laughs> for us to get
0: going here yeah and luckily, I suppose, first two B-21 Raider stealth bombers are ready for to start testing interesting engineering. Acting Acquisition Executive Darlene Costello said that the aircraft are not far along enough for acceleration. To her, the priority is to get through design, get completed, and not introduce concurrency into the project. Once the fleet of B-21s is complete, the service looks forward to working with a fleet of 225 heavy bombers, nearly 70 more than its current fleet of 158. So... It looks like they're slow rolling some of the procurement or type stuff already. It looks like everything's going to plan and they're doing testing. So that's good news. And we'll see here. We were just talking about concurrency, right? Don't want to introduce concurrency. I'm still torn on when is concurrency and when is concurrency wrong? And I guess in this kind of large monolithic type program, concurrency might not uh, be the best idea. But yeah, in. I think it depends.
1: My take from F 35 experience is that you don't want concurrency on on parts that are structural. You don't want to have to you don't want to have to replace a bunch of spars and different components where you have to take the aircraft down to down down to its like basic parts. So that I understand. If there's structural stuff and it's they're making sure that it has the life that it's expected to have, then yeah, I wouldn't introduce concurrency. Well,
0: you know what this almost signals to me. The fact that the acquisition executive is saying hey, we can take our time and test means that they were relatively efficient in development, compressed timelines. Because usually it's like, if we delay running up on TE, our procurement dollars are there, we just got to ram this thing through. So maybe this
1: is a signal that everything is going on. Right. Yeah, maybe. I, I, I will admit though, that if the concurrency is not structural, given that this project it is supposed to be highly modular, it's supposed to be digital based, it's all about being able to continue to upgrade to respond to the threats. It, if you can do that and the concurrency is, is based on other capabilities, it seems and it's modular, then it seems like you should be able to do that after it's produced. Like You should be able to make those changes after it's produced. So that I guess that would be the question or the thing that sticks out to me is why not get these things built as soon as possible if you can, if the upgrades are just software and sensors or whatever that you can change out without a, a ton of integration work. Yeah, I don't, we don't have all the details here. So you don't really know. We do seem to be General Ray and all the, all the bomber leaders are seem to be saying we need these now we need to get, we need to get this going. Yeah. I'm a little bit surprised that they're not pushing ahead. with the production. Yeah.
0: I wonder to what degree it's, do you have production tooling, right? Or like what kind of tooling was used in the development stage and how much of that is going to be used for the production and maybe there's just we see from the industrial capabilities report like it's one to three year timelines to get a machine tool and i would imagine for this type of stealth it would probably be closer to the three or if not longer right
1: yeah that's a good that's a good point that there could be some of that going on especially with supply chain issues maybe tooling is there's delays in tooling There may also be delays in some of the electronic stuff, some of the cards, some of the FPGAs or ASICs or whatever they're working on with all the shortages. They may be suffering a little bit from that too. I'm not, can't say, but yeah. The next one we got, US
0: Army to use HoloLens technology and high-tech headsets for soldiers from Microsoft. So this article was actually pretty interesting and I had a blog post about it a couple of days ago. But one of the quotes here is, quote, the devices met the Army's requirements for rugged waterproof and shockproof but no one had considered for example that the headsets needed to be a, allow allowing users to brace a rifle against the cheek and another one was allowing like the the battery pack to allow the soldier to army crawl and there's just like all these instances of apparently of rec- all these requirements that they could not have specified up front but were able to find in kind of an iterative process and they were able to do development in the kind of way that we see out of the commercial sector, like the lean methodology. So things seem to be going right for uh, HoloLens. Yeah, so
1: far, yeah, Microsoft really seems to be proving themselves. And I've had a little bit involved with this program and everything just looks very promising. Their strategy, I think. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see as they develop more apps, as, as it starts to scale how does Microsoft work with maybe other vendors? Uh, I'm still really interested in the kind of the digital upgrade piece, but overall they seem to have really shown how you can take a commercial product and without totally reinventing the wheel, turn it into turn it into a military capability that can be used for the, t- probably the toughest customer, right? Like what customer is tougher than the infantry troop who is in the mud and out out in some of the worst conditions. So yeah, success story so far.
0: Yeah. It was only two years, I think from like, Basically, the programs start to like this point where they're ready for basically a milestone C production decision. So um, the Army's really holding it up high. <laughs> they talk about it quite a bit. So pretty good stuff there. Air Force, will go from uh, good to bad. Air Force releases bridge tanker sources SOD announcement, Air Force Lifecycle Center. The Air Force is seeking companies that have the capability to deliver commercial derivative tanker aircraft to supplement the Air Force tanker aircraft fleet at the end of the KC 46 Pegasus production. So, this is in some places it was called the KCY, in other places, the KCZ. That's not necessarily bad to say, hey, we want some tankers at the end of this current program that we have here. But breaking defense puts it a little bit differently. Air Force starts KCY tanker search as lawmakers slam the KC 46. I would strongly urge you to look at recompeting the Boeing contract, said Representative Whitman. Air Force leaders has said a recompete would probably cost more than completing the current fixed cost contract. Looking for 140 to 160 commercial derivatives to follow on from the KC 46. But if you I don't know if you were listening to some of the budget hearings from the Air Force, but yeah, they went pretty hard on it. The KC-46 has six Category 1 deficiencies. The current ones that we've already known about were Tanker's remote vision system. The Air Force has the boom scraping against the airframe of receiver aircraft, and that's kind of part of the remote vision system issue, it seems. If you fix one, you fix the other. Boeing must redesign the boom to accommodate the a 10 that was actually the Air Force's fault, right? And the GAO had a big report slamming the Air Force for some of these deficiencies. In March 2021, we found out about excessive fuel leaks. And the way that it made it sound was there was some leaking between compartments, but it wasn't that bad. In the hearings, some representatives were going off saying it can't even hold fuel. I think that was hyperbole, but <laughs> no one was correcting him. But then the new ones are the drain tubes in the KC-46 air refueling receptacle and a software bug with the flight management system, which creates navigation anomalies. So those are all the lists of things going on with the, the KC-46. And yeah, there's no other way to go about it. It's just kind of power through. Boeing's taking a bunch of losses, but the Air, the Air Force isn't happy with it either. So it seems like they're stuck between a rock and a hard place.
1: I did think was that the, that was the one that uh, yeah they're seeing companies. I think this was the one where they were willing to entertain Airbus again. And Airbus does have their their A three thirty multi-role tanker transport that actually does have refueling capabilities. So I don't know. I'm curious to see Airbus got burned pretty bad during this original competition. Yeah. We'll see if they feel feel up for playing the game again. But yeah, it would be pretty nice. I mean Boeing. Man, it's hard to understand what's going on with that company sometimes, but they really just seem to have done everything wrong they could on this program. Just even delivering the aircraft with tons of parts and tools still left in the back of the aircraft. It's just, I don't know. I just don't understand it. But anyway, they've definitely got themselves in a pinch here. So it would be interesting if Airbus comes back into the picture and, and takes a big chunk of their a big chunk of their business it would be maybe a little bit karmic but yeah so I'm curious. I am definitely hoping that that however they fill that gap it's Boeing well, finally gets their act together or they find some commercial companies or they they go with Airbus that the uh, Kcy that they've really learned a lot of these lessons or KcZ I guess now they're calling it the advanced air fuel tanker that that one they really look at this hard and say, how can we do this smarter instead of building the biggest aircraft with all of this complicated stuff? Is there a more simplistic, simple, dispersed way of doing refueling? And I'm looking a little bit, thinking about the Navy's approach. They're using that unmanned UAV to actually extend the range of some other carrier aircraft. And I think that just gives, it, gives you some thought space on maybe some of the options the Air Force could look at for the next tanker, but...
0: Yeah, and that, but that was actually a a Boeing drone, right? The (laughs) MQ, and it's for the Navy. And it actually did its first fighter mid air refueling just a couple weeks ago with the Super Hornet. And so it seemed like it moved uh, 325 of the 500 pounds of fuel available in a 4.5 hour flight test. MQ 25 is also from Boeing, but it's funny because the KC 46 was supposed to be like this almost like paragon of like excellence in acquisition, fixed price, you no know, contract for commercial. And it like expanded the definition of commercial item essentially. And it was like doing what a lot of people thought was smart back 10 years ago. And then it just seemed not to work out. And I don't know, it's always hard to blame a tool because a tool is just a tool, right? Like using these fixed price incentives versus going with a cost plus development or something like that. But yeah, it's just not really clear how that how far wrong that went. Another part of this here, and it's just, it's crazy to me that they would even entertain Airbus, but like, the it's crazy from a sense of how bad it must have got, because in those hearings, congressmen were just livid. And you don't hear that often, like how hard they were challenging them on the KC-46. You hear it on certain programs, but not all that often. And One of the ones that they were bringing up was the price of spare parts. What's the fair price of KC-46 spare parts? The Air Force isn't so sure. Thus far, the company has paid more than $5 billion in cost overruns after winning a fixed price contract. They're trying to recover some of their costs on the back end, and they're starting to recover their costs basically on some of those spares, says one government official. One part in particular now costs 15 times what the Air Force previously paid for it. Here's some more kind of shade being thrown on the program.
1: Yeah, I, I don't think that is uncommon because sometimes those early parts, I might just be like, you're doing some test aircraft or something. So yeah, I, I don't know when they pay the, the really low, much lower price. I don't know when that occurred, but yeah, you would expect the price to get cheaper generally as you're buying more of them and you're scaling up some of your suppliers. So that definitely does not seem right, but let's face it, all of the vendors historically that, that produce aircraft always look at that recouping any lost profits or, or maybe some challenging challenging times during development, you, you always expect to recoup that in your production and your OM or your, just sustain it. So it's probably not that crazy that some of those costs are higher than normal. But yeah, some of that seems pretty outrageous. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But it just goes against, you got to know 15% profit is like the max you're going to make. Like that's yeah. what... It's all cost-based pricing here. And you can make that to the extent that you can hide it under commercial items or whatever. That's one way. But it seems like at some point, DCMA or the Inspector General or GAO is going to bring the hammer down.
1: Yep. Yeah. Yeah. If you can't justify it, you're going to get caught. Yeah.
0: So the next one here, X ex-f- facebook VR exec says he'll turn US troops into invincible technomancers. Just raised $450 million from CNBC. <laughs> The company now is valued at $4.6 billion. And Dural provides sensor networks, towers, drones, and powerful software that all ties it together, whose potential uses include protecting our troops on base, defending energy infrastructure, combating wildfires, and stopping human trafficking. So it's interesting. They got a whole bunch of funding. Like, I think it was just a few months ago, or maybe last year, that they got $200 million raise. So another $450 million. We'll see if their revenues can, can bring in to start justifying it, but at least they have some runway to build a bunch of product and show it and hopefully get over that valley of death if their products are sufficiently valuable enough to justify
1: it. Yeah, Andrew is a pretty impressive company. I think they have some of the things they've already done, contributed to ABMS and some of that work. So I don't really doubt their ability. They seem to have really sharp people. I do wonder, they mentioned in this article I've asked, <laughs> I did wonder if i asked was Maybe part of the justification they used for getting that big of a Series D round, but yeah, there's there is untapped potential in all of these areas. I think we've been saying this, right? Is this in terms of when you start to look at unmanned potential or tradable platforms that are cheaper and things like that, where you can really start to to fill in some of the gaps, particularly for some of the missions that are out there, where you have big platforms that maybe get after the big stuff, but there's a bunch of bunch of seams that need to be filled. And yeah, I think looking at this where you have sensor networks and drones and different other unmanned capabilities that you can use for defense protection and defending pipelines and wildfires and all this stuff like. It just totally makes sense. It's almost a shame that we're we're not already doing that. So, which we are to some extent is the virtual border thing. I know that the the customs of border protection, I, I know they do use a lot of sensors and the force protection on most bases have a lot of sensors and different things like that. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see their ideas. I think they, they're a good company and yeah, it'll be interesting to see what they come up with.
0: Yeah, they it's interesting how big the raises for I was just looking at like last year they I think they had 90 million in contracts, and a lot of that was actually with DHS and not DOD. So we'll see how they grow their portfolio. But I just love the fact that Palmer Lucky is saying <laughs> invincible technomancers. <laughs> it is yeah. just this is the kind of thing that you just would never have seen like a defense executive kind of talking
1: about. So I think it's refreshing and cool, but... you super soldier. I'm, I'm a little surprised. It sounds like a, a fancier tech word for, than super soldier, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty much.
0: Super soldier seems to be like I, like those Jean-Claude Van Damme movies where they just make like a physical super soldier. And this yeah. is more of techno, man. I guess they're just like, I don't know. It's that kind of vision of the future where it's probably people behind a computer doing like code and orchestration of different networks, and having effects in the real world, but not necessarily physically being there. But they could also be physical too. <laughs> so I don't know. I think it's probably a blend of both of those things, right? John claude Van Damme of the future and like a cyberpunk 2077. So the next one we got here, the pitfalls of factoring insecurity and in CMMC costs from National Defense Magazine. Up to CMMC level three will be included in your indirect rate. So if you don't get charged to do it, but you do recoup the costs over time, and you have to spread the cost across all of your business. Uh, total annual CMMC level 3 is estimated at just $60,000 a year all in. So first, they had a weird pricing table in there and what they thought the expected costs were. 60k for a year for a company to get to CMMC level 3 just seems absurdly low to me. But and I'm sure a lot of people might agree with that. But the other part here is that it's just how it's going to be Charge back. I guess the higher levels you might be able to expense them as a clin on a contract, but they're all going to be indirect rates. And that just is one of these barriers to entry, right? If you're a big company that has a bunch of existing defense contracts, then you can take on a bunch of those CMMC costs and spread them. And they're not going to jack up your rates all that bad. But if you're a new company with little or no business or a bunch of commercial business and you want to keep doing business with the government, you have to take on those costs and then spread them. Um, onto your commercial business, which kind of makes you less less competitive? Or if you're a new a startup, you have to eat those costs first. And will you ever get them back? Is it a different accounting period? So can you charge them back through your indirect rates next year or two years later when you get a contract? So I don't know, a lot of questions here on the CMMC.
1: Yeah, these were the exact questions we raised at the very beginning of the program. And we, I think our biggest concern was really for the non-traditionals. If you were you're a small contractor that maybe a, a silver contract, but you wanted to scale and actually do some work with the Yeah. This would be a huge, a huge, uh, barrier. Maybe if you're a smaller company, maybe it's a little bit easier for you to get your processes up, but to do CMMC level three, if you haven't already been investing in some of that, it takes, it can take years to get all of the controls in place. And then you also have to demonstrate one of the requirements for certification is you have to demonstrate like a pattern of practice or they call it something like that, that you've been doing these, where it's not just like a one-time thing where you're doing it for the audit. So yeah, really hard for the smalls if you don't already have a contract. And then for the bigs, it's never been a problem. They're going to do this. They're just going to make it happen. But I think for me, it's more about the timing where, you know, if you're not already actively doing this and you're spending your own money, or you've gotten your program to agree to allow these indirect costs, then... If a bid, if something comes up, an RFP pops out that you are perfect for, you're not going to be able to bid on the contract because you're not there yet. So that was always my biggest concern was that, yeah, we should be getting all of our vendors up to a certain level, but to expect it at the beginning when they haven't even bid on a contract, it it seems always seemed unreasonable to me. So yeah, a lot of questions with CNMC. Still haven't gotten answers on a lot of those and it's been like a year and a half. So
0: Yeah. One of the questions is whether these companies are actually going to have to set up their own internal program offices just to do CMMC. And there's one company, it was a small, smallish company, pretty streamlined, and they still had to have like multiple FTEs for a year, they were saying. Okay. You have to hire, not just hire someone to coordinate all this, but then you have to bring a lot of developer time off of the regular duties to come into this as well. So it's just 60K, just doesn't seem seem realistic to me. And nope. yeah, it's going to just fall hardest on the non-traditionals and the new guys that are trying to enter. And they said, I think the original goal was that by June, 2020, or you would have RFIs with CMMC. And by October, 2020, you'd have RFPs. They did put out the first tranche of Pathfinders, correct? Yeah. So they already have some out there, but Like when they start getting to dozens and then hundreds, that will be the real time. And I'm not really sure how far off that is.
1: But I think it was only a couple of weeks ago where they said that they got their first auditor approved. So I think that was one of their challenges was there was a lot of disruptions with the different CMMC boards was actually getting the board to actually get the companies approved because the companies had to be CMMC level three too. So they just got like their first company a couple of weeks ago. So, yeah,
0: and they have, that was right. They have the backlog of the DCMA folks to, Uh, to to certify the certifier. So there's a whole, that's a good point. If you just got your first auditor to be ready, like it's going to be a while to get enough. Like you could be in the queue for a long time and how are you going to bid on a contract while you're waiting for that? And all the uncertainty that throws into it. Yep. So let's move right along here and try to close this out pretty soon. U.S. Air Force completes tests of swarming munitions, but will they ever see battle? Defense news. Air Force sent an in-flight target update to the ground station to a swarm of CSDBs directing the bomb to abandon the current trajectory and go after a new target. These technologies are completely changing the way we think about weapons capabilities, just like the laser-guided bomb did several decades ago. So I think... That's probably right with these swarming munitions. You're seeing them all over the place. The, The Marines are just testing a new one from a USV. But this was the thing that kind of got to me here out of this one. We can determine that the gain out of the system may be, and then we'll look for future ways that we can morph this into a program of record at later time. So Golden Horde, which is the Air Force's big thing of swarming munitions and networking them all, is not likely to transition for at least another three or more years if they're not even thinking about lining up a program of record or like they're thinking that maybe they'll think about lining up a program of record. So we're really looking at three plus years for something major out of this, it seems.
1: Yeah, this was, I think these were always meant to be, they were part of Dr. Rupper's Vanguard kind of efforts where this went along with NGAD. Um, And Skyborg, but Skyborg, Skyborg, it seems
0: they're already a program of record ish, maybe not of record, but yeah, not of record
1: yet, but I I think they're all roughly in the same space where they're, they're going to have to compete for funds at some point. Like right now they're just still operating in that prototyping place where they're just maturing. I actually like this approach personally, because I think they're continuing to chip away without a ton of money. They're chipping away at some of these really hard things and maturing it and getting it ready. And it's buying themselves some time for the planning piece, because when they do scale, they're going to probably be probably good sized programs. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. They're probably going to have to retrofit. I imagine most of the weapons to enable this capability. So there's going to be probably a lot of like field modifications and things. But yeah, and so I think it's actually okay. If there's not the nice thing about the Vanguard programs. I'd love to see like, I'd like to see a hundred Vanguard programs where they're, they're going after things like this, all kinds of different things where they're maturing it. And then, Hey, if there's a need that pops up where the operators say, we need this thing fast. Like the threat just changed and that thing you've been playing around with or prototyping now needs to become real time. But then you're at least in a place where you can start to, you can scale it because you've done all this learning. So I like this idea of doing these, these things where you're trying out different stuff, but uh, yeah, it would be interesting if somebody said what golden Horde needs to go full-time next year. Would they be able to accelerate this? Would they be prepared to do that? Or what hurdles would they face? that would be kind of interesting to see.
0: Yeah, we've seen that over the last, I don't know, five years or so, that the BA64, the prototyping accounts, have really got beefed up uh, quite a bit. And yeah, I guess the question is, where do they go? Where are they? And I, I don't know. That's just by fear. I guess we can slow them down and just keep them in that realm for a longer and then we need them right at urgent operational needs and reprioritize money and we'll just get it done. That's a feasible way of going at, at it. And it does. It,
1: one of the things in that article too is about building a digital engineering virtual model. You can test some of these things out. I guess that's maybe the future. Oh, the, the Coliseum. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If if we can start to build up the robustness of some of those environments, maybe we can have more. Maybe we can afford a lot more of these because the testing, some of the testing stuff won't be so expensive because we'll have to do it on the ranges or do live fire stuff. And we can get more creative with this. Like we talked about earlier though, we have to test it, but- Yeah, yeah. that's my point. I think there's all this, we don't want
0: to, I don't want to cut testing budget. If if anything, you want more testing, but like, where does the money come from? Because if you still have the same demands of operations now, like you have to be, are you going to invest in the future? I think that's some of the problem that we face with that trade-off and we've just never been able to fully resource what we said that we wanted to do. And in the 1950s, with the new look, Eisenhower was willing to do it. There was that will to go and, and do one thing really super well. And then there was the rebalancing, of course, after that, the balanced approach. But I, I just don't know. Would, is America willing to draw back or bond some of its you know foreign obligations in order to get these things done? Probably not. I, I don't think so. Are they willing to spend more money to go do it? I don't know. China might have to do a number of other things.
1: I don't at the same time though, they're doing things like this. I think all the Vanguard programs, maybe end is a little different depending on how that comes out. We're still we still learn something about that every day. But by taking existing weapons and then just networking them differently, if that solves, if that keeps us from having to start another big weapons development program, then this is a win. So in, in some ways, I feel like this approach could actually be more cost-effective. Yes, you do have to put up that upfront rdt and e but if you get competition, if you're able to pull in a lot more commercial ideas on, on, on ways to do things, the, the benefits might outweigh that, that those initial investments long-term and, and it may actually be a more affordable approach. So, I don't know. No, it's- I'm with you though. Ultimately, if you do
0: the process, it should cost you much less to get the capability that you were after and you actually get a better capability than you would have through a more rigid, throw as much money as possible at it and try to fix a whole bunch of things instead of do, you know, as our friend Dan Ward says, one miracle at a time, right? It's Yeah, I think yeah, there, there's got to be something to just like constraining the amount of money. And potentially just, I think there's something to the idea of just DOD signaling. There's a bunch of money here for someone who does it. And can you just do these things as, as they're doing in, in budget activity six, four, these prototyping things that aren't a program of record. And then just say, if you've done them in an austere manner, of with lower end technology or technology that gets the job done without being this super exquisite thing then there might be an asset service thing later. Maybe if I'm doing loitering munitions, like dollars per loiter. <laughs> and then if you strike a kill on an observation, then you get like this or whatever, I don't know. But there's probably know. some kind of, you could almost <laughs> lease them or buy a service in some way. Uh, that would be interesting. Or you could just do a regular procurement. But I don't think the production on some of these things, like loitering munitions, IVAS with the HoloLens, the companies can take a lot of that investment on themselves and should for in many cases until they prove the value and then government can just buy it.
1: Yeah. I, and I think, but I think this does get to what we've talked about before with like portfolios, where if you had some capabilities that you knew you had to achieve, but you had flexibility to achieve them in different ways, you could put money in. And this kind of goes, I think we've, we've talked about many times about redundancy and resiliency. This would allow you to maybe go after four or five things and you have a bucket of money, but you put small dollars in different things. You have a BAA and you're having different companies come in with different ideas on how to achieve it. You're getting a bunch of different ideas. And maybe you, you mature some of those for a couple of years. They don't, a couple of them don't pan out or they don't result in anything, but you keep a couple of them alive knowing that you're learning and that it has some potential. And then when you need to call upon it, you, you've built up your innovation base a little bit where those companies have also learned and they've, they've matured, maybe they've gotten a little bit bigger and now you can call upon them to go start procurement. So I don't know, I do look about look like the, this approach as one way that we should probably start to build out our innovation base more. We're not just taking Cibars contracts, but we're, we're taking those promising things and actually continuing to mature them over years. Like the technology might not be there right now, kind of like we talked about with the railgun, I might not be there right now, but continue to throw a few dollars in there, let these small companies play and come up with new ideas and improve. And then all of a sudden you have a really cool new capability, or maybe two or three different ways of doing something. So I'm still pretty, I'm still pretty pro. Yeah.
0: It makes me think of maybe jointness has arrived at through industry. Oftentimes it's, oh, we got to plan and coordinate and joint this, joint that. And it's like, if you have constrained amount of dollars going after capabilities, and you're a company with this kind of capability and you want to grow it, you're going to like be looking anywhere and everywhere across the services for something that you can like modify your technology to fit into their area to fit what they're doing. So I feel like to some degree, the natural competition creates jointness, whereas where you have these kind of just like a big program stovepipe and like that's the only game in town and they're all architected differently. Mm-hmm. And you, you've set yourself in stone and you don't get the, that kind of crossed energy and that energy that like sales and marketing might be wasteful to some degree, but I think there's actually some kind of matching benefit going on
1: there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
0: All right. So I'll just take us home here with, I'll just kind of read the top lines from a couple of them and feel free to jump in if you had any comments, but the cost of the U.S. Navy ship to shore connector breaches Nunn-McCurdy law. So it's grown from... 47 million to 56 million in 2011 dollars. Um, they're going to buy 72 of them. Next one we have is army research budget focused on tactical electronic warfare architecture. So there's a number of interesting things there that they're buying. Jamming pods, integrated cyber, a SIGINT and EW systems, EI- EW planning and visualization tools, and sensing and geolocation. HII Huntington Ingalls launches first DDG 51 flight three destroyer. And that's got the new spy six radar with Aegis baseline 10 first DDG flight three, but they've also cut a DDG flight three from the FY 22 request. And we'll see if, as we're talking about whether Congress will put it back in Ingalls to hire 3000 full-time shipbuilders, which is interesting since (laughs) I wonder if they're still going to be doing it given that one of them's cut. I'm not sure which company is actually getting the ship cut from their yard, but we'll see if that still is going. The cost estimate for the lead boat of the Columbia class program grew by $637 million from USNI news. So there we go with the Columbia class. That looks like uh, material escalation and construction performance are actually the culprits here. And we'll see if the Columbia class, which is going to be a huge procurement in EMD phase for the, the Navy, growing up to 30% at one point of the Navy's procurement chip building budget. We'll see if that can stay on track. Boeing drone refuels U.S. Navy fighter in midair. That's what we've already talked about. DARPA's Interceptor drone shoots stringy streamers to drop enemy drones. And this one's got a lot of attention recently, gunking up quadcopter kind of their rotors just with some stringy stuff. Funny. Navy finds 32 problems with the littoral combat chip. No surprise there. Relativity Space unveils... Fully reusable 3D printed Terran R rocket. So this one's actually pretty interesting. And we'll see if uh, relativity using 3D printing is able to outcompete uh, SpaceX or whether SpaceX has really just got a really far advantage here. But they're saying that the the Terran 1, is, which is their lower end expendable, expects to start flying later this year. The Terran R, which is the larger, and it will be closer to the Fal- Falcon 9 in terms of lift. We'll see how many years it takes them to get there. Pentagon to redirect $2.2 in border wall funds back to military projects. So that seems to have just got peanut butter spread around to 66 projects in 16 countries and 11 U.S. states doing a bunch of stuff. Elementary schools, more schools, machine gun range in Guam, missile field expansion. Good stuff. So that's what we got for you this week. Thanks and join us next time. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.